Well, good morning, Grace Church. So good to be here. Um, uh, Renee and I are glad to be here. Uh, it's a delight to worship with you again. Uh, just in response to Aaron, yeah, um, I've been uh, considering becoming ordained for probably the last five or six years. Um, it's uh, just an understanding of what an elder is. It's just uh, it's been a growing uh, passion of mine for the past. Uh, five or six, seven years. Um, and it's, I think, a pastor elder is something who you are. It's, yes, it is, it's specific tasks, you know, preaching and doing, serving the church, but it ultimately, at its root, it's something who you are. It's rooted in your very identity as a, as a, as a believer. And, um, yeah, a pastor elder is just is a part of who I am and, and what God has done in my life over the past, uh, you know, last five, six years, uh, but also the last, my entire life. So this is a, a reflection of, of what God is uh, doing in my life. Uh, before I begin this morning, uh, I would like to um, just briefly mention uh, if you'd like to receive our, our personal newsletter as well as subscribe to our uh, ministry YouTube channel, uh, we have a QR code. Uh, both Renee and I have a copy of this, and we'd love to have you sign up uh, to receive our newsletter. Uh, the passage I'd like to look at this morning is Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9 verses 35 through 38, and I'd like to just go ahead and read those verses. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were, were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I'm sure that all of us have heard of the term crossroad before. Uh, from time to time, we've had a, a teacher at school or uh, a professor at the university or a, a pastor at the church say that a time in history is a crossroad. Um, and the person using that term, they're trying to convey the idea that uh, an event or an intellectual movement is a decisive turning point in history and that all the events that follow are impacted by that key turning point. I do believe today is a crossroad in the history of the church. I'm somewhat hesitant to use the term because I think it, it tends to be overused and and I think we may get a little skeptical when we hear it. Um, and for example, if, if an event is not quite as decisive or critical as claimed to be, then um, doubts will rise in our mind. But I believe there's valid reason to use the term crossroad, um, particularly when we consider what God has done over the past 100 years and what is projected to happen in the coming 30 to 40 years. The passage here in Matthew 9 is a timeless passage that is true of every generation since the time of Christ. 
When Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but, but the workers are few, that has been true of every generation, every generation. But recent events in church history have made these words even more true and even more poignant in our own day. This morning, I'd like to focus on verse 36 with a particular emphasis on the phrase, like sheep without a shepherd. The reason I'd like to focus on that verse is because I cannot think of any other passage of Scripture that better describes the state of the church worldwide than this phrase. But before we dive into that, this phrase, I'd like to look, take a look at how does this verse fit into the larger context of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. The first thing I'd like you to notice is look at the direction that the Lord is telling us to look. He's telling us to look outward, look out and away from ourselves and understand what's going on in the world. And, and in comparison, I think it's helpful to note there are other passages of Scripture that say, look at the Scripture, understand the Scripture, as well as uh, other passages that say, look to Christ. And uh, like, for example, in uh, the Gospel of John, um, the Lord Jesus repeatedly tells us to look at himself. Look at me, understand who I am, believe in me, and put your faith in me. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the true vine, and, and so on. But here in Matthew 9, Jesus tells us to look in a different direction. He's telling us to look outward. He's saying, look at the world out there and make ministry choices based on the needs that you see. And specifically, look at the shepherd-sheep ratio. Look at how few shepherds there are in comparison to the vast number of sheep. And based on what you see, make ministry choices to address those needs. Now, the best way to take a look out there at the world around us is to look at some of the, the statistics that give an idea of where the church is going worldwide. Over the last 100 years, more people have come to faith in Christ than in, than in the previous 20 centuries combined. And the numbers are absolutely staggering. Staggering. About 178,000 people are coming to faith in Christ every day. 178,000 people coming to Christ every day. And the number of new believers has far, far outpaced the number of new pastors entering the ministry. And the traditional institutional seminaries simply cannot train pastors fast enough to meet the need. And nowhere in the world is this more apparent than in Africa. Let me describe what's going on in Africa. In the year 1900, there are about 10 million professing believers in Africa. And for every Christian, every one Christian, there were four Muslims. By the year 1960, around the year uh, when many countries were gaining uh, independence from their European colonizers, at that time the church was about 60 million. But after colonization, there was a tremendous uh, spurt of growth. 
by the year 2000, the church had grown to about 360 million believers. Now, the year 2000 was an important milestone. By the year 2000, the number of Christians in Africa roughly came to be about a, on a one-to-one ratio, one Christian for every one, one Muslim. By the year 2025, the church in Africa is projected to grow to 600 million, just a few years from now. And here's the really stunning figure. This is breathtaking. By the year 2050, the church in Africa is projected to grow to almost 1 billion. At that time, the the church, the number of Christians in Africa will be approximately four Christians for every every one Muslim, which is, if you remember, is a complete reversal from 150 years ago. So it went from one Christian to, four, to every four Muslims, then that figure has flipped, reversed itself. The growth of the church in Africa is the largest growth of the church in the history of the church. And nothing else even comes close. I mean, try and wrap your head around that figure, the potential of one billion Christians in Africa. And what I've described, that's just Africa. Uh, a similar work of God is going on in other countries and in other regions, in Central America, Central Asia, Southern Asia, Southeast Asia. Let me just briefly mention a few. In Cuba, for example, in the year 1990, just 30 years ago, there are about 300 Baptist and Assemblies of God churches. But today, there are 19,000 in Cuba. Uh, During the last 25 years, the evangelical church in Cuba has grown from 0.5% evangelical to about 10%. Uh, In Vietnam, according to the U.S. State Department, the church has grown more than 600% in the past 10 years. And I noticed I mentioned the U.S. State Department. Some of these remarkable figures, they're not just coming from Christian scholars or missionaries. It's coming from secular sources like Uh, like I've read articles in the New York Times, NPR, uh, our own government. They're documenting the same thing. In Iran, Iran has one of the fastest growing churches in the world today, and the government's doing everything that they can to try and stop it, but they can't. And many Iranian believers, most Iranian believers and foreign missionaries, think that the church in Iran is approaching one billion. And this is up from, I'm sorry, not one billion, one million. And this is up from almost nothing 40 years ago. Around 1980, there were 500 known believers in Iran. In China, for example, another example, um, Philip Johnson, in his book, Jesus in Beijing, he estimates that the church in China may grow to 30% of the population if it keeps growing at its current rate. Um, my own parents, when they visited Shanghai about 15 years ago, the tour guide in uh, Shanghai said that about 10% of Shanghai was evangelical. On any given Sunday in China, more people attend church than in all of Europe. Now, I can go on and on, country after country after country, uh, and give similar statistics and 
uh, a similar work of God is going, around in, going on in other countries. And as we consider all of these statistics, here's the key takeaway. Here's the, the main point that I, to drive home. Most of these new believers who have professed faith in Christ over the past 30 to 40 years, and most of the new believers who are projected to join the church in the coming 30 some odd years, most of these new believers will be without a pastor. Most of these new believers will be without a pastor. Tens of millions and perhaps even hundreds of millions when we consider Africa. Most of these millions of believers will be without a pastor or will have an ill-equipped pastor. Now when you listen to those figures, listen again to the words of our Lord. Like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, I, in the past, when I thought of this verse, I thought, you know, maybe a couple hundred, couple thousand um, at the time of Christ. But in our day, we're talking tens of millions and perhaps even hundreds of millions of new believers without a pastor. And with ill equipped pastors, who are trying to plant new churches or build up currently established churches, it's an uphill climb. It's an uphill climb. And the challenges to, to pastor a current church or plant a new one, the challenges are immense. Recently, I came across a, um, a description of, the Chinese, of Chinese house church, house church leaders uh, uh, written by uh, an American missionary, and listen to his description of the Chinese house church pastors. He said, most Chinese house church leaders did not grow up in a healthy local church with a godly pastor. When these sheep, who have never experienced shepherding, try to be shepherds and pastor churches, they are at a complete loss. They are 100% willing 200% faithful, but they are less than 10% equipped. When it comes to pastoring churches, most are winging it. Um, I also recently read a, um, a book called Serving with, excuse me, Serving with Eyes Wide Open. It's a book by David Livermore, and he describes the state of the global church, and he, he makes a, a remarkable statement. He says, the latest statistics indicate that there are 3.2 million pastors worldwide who are untrained or undertrained. Many of these pastors have families and jobs and live on less than $40 a month. It's estimated that 7,000 new church leaders are needed daily to care for the churches that have no pastor or an untrained pastor. At no point in the history of the church have the number of pastors been so few compared to the vast number of, of believers. And, and without the slightest exaggeration, we truly do live at one of the most unique and important crossroads in the history of the church. And uh, as a local church, uh, you're the missions committee at the local church, the choices that we make today will have tremendous, tremendous impact in the decades to come. 
So what does Jesus say how we should respond to this? And these are stunning, are remarkable figures. How does Jesus tell us to respond to this great need? Can I first say what I think we should avoid and what we should not do? We might be tempted to think that the situation is completely hopeless. And from a human standpoint, I think it's true. There's probably not much hope. You know, humanly speaking, can we train 7,000 new pastors every day? It's the re- I think the reality is, is this is far beyond human capacity. So what does Jesus tell us to do? What's the first thing that he says to do? In verse 38, uh, in the NIV, it says, Ask the Lord of the harvest. Now, most English translations of this verse say, Pray, and I think that's a much uh, better translation. Verse 38, I think it should say, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Our Lord is saying that while the situation looks helpless or hopeless, from our perspective, all things are possible with God. In Luke 17, verse 6, Jesus says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And then in the very next chapter, uh, Luke 18, Jesus says something very similar. He says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. So does does 7,000 new pastors every day sound like something beyond our ability? You bet, certainly. Um, But God, uh, but this this is easy in the eyes of God. God tells us to pray. Um, in 1850, there was a, an Anglican pastor in the United Kingdom, and he wrote a series of commentaries on the four Gospels. And in the, uh, his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, and on this verse, verse 38, um, listen to what he said. Do you have an overhead on that? There it is. Okay. I'd like to go ahead and read it. Um, If you're unable to read it, I'll just go ahead and... um, If we know anything of prayer, let us make it a point of conscience never to forget this solemn charge of our Lord. Let us settle it in our minds that it is one of the surest ways of doing good and stemming evil. Personal working for souls is good, giving money is good, but praying is best of all. By prayer we reach him, without whom work and money are alike in vain. Money can pay agents, universities can give learning, bishops may ordain, congregations may elect, but the Holy Ghost alone can make ministers of the gospel and raise up lay workmen in the spiritual harvest who need not be ashamed. Never, never may we forget that if we would do good in this world, our first duty is to pray. Amen. I'd like to, if, uh, if my thoughts of encouragement to refer to the, the sovereign power of God sound like a, a sort of a, it's hard to wrap your mind about or something as if it's just a, um, an unrealistic concept, I'd like to show a, uh, refer to an example from church history. 
Uh, it's a perfect illustration in church history of what happens when the church prays and God does the impossible. In my hand here, I have a book that was published in 1907, and it describes the Welsh church about 100 years before that. Uh, Wales is a region of the United Kingdom. It's on the, the west coast of uh, England. It's, and further west from Wales is, uh, is Ireland. Now, the, the full title of this book is Biographical Dictionary of Ministers and Preachers of the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Body. It's, that's a mouthful. Now, when you hear the term biographical dictionary, this may elicit about as much excitement in you as watching paint dry. But when you understand the history that surrounds this, it's a breathtaking book. It's a remarkable book. Let me just briefly describe the history around this. Prior to 1750, Wales was a largely unreached, unchurched region of the United Kingdom. And at that time, most, most Welsh held to some form of animism, maybe mixed in with some beliefs uh, from the Church of England. Almost the entire population was illiterate. Uh, I think 100% of the women were illiterate, and about 70% of the men were illiterate. Um, the, the Bible was translated, I believe, in uh, 1570, but uh, there were still no copies available to the Welsh people. Um, and there were few efforts to reach this region of the United Kingdom. But around the year 1730 uh, to 1750, some began to pray that God would bring salvation to the, to the Welsh people. And God did answer in a mighty, mighty way. Between about 1750 and 1850, there was the Welsh Methodist Revival, which had roots to the ministries of John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and a number of other uh, pastors like Howell Harris and Daniel, Daniel Rowland. And one of the fruits of revival is a flood of new Christians, of, of new Christians entering the church. Um, during the 120 years from 1730 to 1850, well, Wales was radically transformed by the gospel. The churches were flooded with new Christians. But what is less known or less understood about revival is that um, God also floods the churches with new pastors. And God did just that. God supplied the Welsh churches with an overwhelming number of faithful, godly pastors. And that's what this book is. About the year 1907, uh, Joseph Evans said, this remarkable work of God, we cannot let this um, be forgotten in church history. We need to remember what God did in Wales for future generations. Um, and... And I would estimate probably about a thousand pastors are recorded, to hear, recorded in this book. It's an amazing example of Matthew 9, verse 38. The people prayed and God answered. God filled whales with pastors. Let me, uh, just, I'd like to summarize with a, a few concluding thoughts. Uh, here's the main takeaway. 
God did this great and mighty work in Wales, and He can do something similar or greater in the future. I remember hearing several times uh, Pastor Aaron say from the pulpit, um, I'm paraphrasing, so, but, but Aaron basically said, we need to look to the past to have to encourage that we would have great faith that God would do something great in the future. And Aaron hit the nail on the head. He's exactly right. 7,000 new pastors are needed every day around the world. And in the eyes of God, this is an easy thing. This is an easy thing. I mean, this, and this book is an example of that. This book should encourage us to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the harvest field. God can flood Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Central Asia, Nepal, Bangladesh, Cambodia, Egypt, Somalia, Morocco, Indonesia. God can flood these countries with pastors. Right now, many of these countries, if not all of the countries, the, the churches that do exist there can be described as sheep without a shepherd. So God did, did this in the past. He can do it again in the future. Just, and one final thought. Training new faithful pastors, shepherds, is very close to the heart of God. Why? Because the shepherd loves the church. The shepherd of the sheep works through human shepherds to build up and strengthen the body that he loves. And my encouragement to Grace Church or to any local church is as you make mission choices, we need to prioritize pastoral training in these countries that, that I just mentioned. And to, uh, it's helpful to consider, consider how this verse, uh, verse 36, uh, sheep without a shepherd, consider how that is related to the Great Commission. Put these two passages side by side and try and think through how do these, uh, how are they related to each other? How does one impact the other? I mean, for example, uh, take, let's say, a church in Pakistan. If a local body is unfortunately characterized as sheep without a shepherd, how will that impact that church's ability to fulfill the Great Commission? It's going to be an uphill climb. It's an up uphill climb. So the training of godly shepherds to shepherd the sheep is deeply interconnected, intertwined with fulfilling the Great Commission. So, and this book is an encouragement that, uh, that God can do this mighty thing uh, in the future as we look to, the, as we look to the, the vast needs that are about to uh, happen in, uh, all, all over the world in the 1040 window. So, if you will, uh, please join me with an, in prayer. Lord Jesus, we believe with all our hearts, with all our might, that you can do all things. That through faith in you, you can, through faith in you, a mulberry tree can be uprooted and thrown into the sea. We believe that all things are possible through you. 7,000 pastors is an overwhelming, every day is an overwhelming figure to contemplate. 
but we know that you can do all things. And we look to you and praise you for all that you have done and will do for the glory of your name. Amen.